The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to Curbsiders. I am not Matthew Franquano. I'm Moni Amin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Meredith Elizabeth Trubit. How are you this evening? Doing well. How are you? You know, I can't complain, but it's been a long night, so we will keep on. So on tonight's show, we discuss oncologic emergencies with our guest, Dr. Aditi Singh. In a minute, Meredith's going to tell you a little bit more about her. But first, will you please tell the good people in the audience what it is we do on this show? Sure, Moni. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. So tonight we have an awesome conversation with our guest, Dr. DT Singh. She is medical oncologist at the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She specializes in the treatment of patients with lung and head and neck cancers with a special focus on neuroendocrine tumors of the lung. She spends several weeks during the year on the inpatient oncology service and is very passionate about teaching internal medicine residents. Her other interests include optimizing clinician efficiency by harnessing the power of the electronic health record. And when she's not working, she loves spending time with her husband, two daughters, and dog Bilbo. So before we get started, I just wanted to check in with you, Moni. Oh no. And just see, have you been on call recently? Oh God. (laughs) No, I have not. So you wouldn't call yourself an oncologist? <laughs> You're. This is what happens when we go rogue without Matt and Paul. This is Moni looks oh, so no. mad. <laughs> All right, so I hope. Um, so we can go ahead and jump in. I hope we don't have too much of a blast talking about all these crises. You went there. You had to do that. Had to. had to do that. Okay. All right. Let's get this started. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Hey, Diti. Thanks for coming on the show. We're really excited to have you. Uh, we're going to start with some rapid fire questions. So let's just start off with your one liner, if you will. Sure. Um, So I'm a medical oncologist um, in Philadelphia. I work at the Abramson Cancer Center um, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I specialize in the care of patients with lung and head and neck cancers. And uh, I'm a mom of two toddlers and a fluffy golden doodle. Awesome. What's the golden doodle's name? Bilbo. (laughs) Like the (laughs) hobbit. Eats a lot. Scruffy. It's the best name. Okay, so I think we'll go ahead and jump in. What is a recent like book, movie, show, album, culture item that you would recommend to people right now that you've gotten some enjoyment out of? The book I was recently reading and absolutely loved was Suzanne Coven's A Letter to a Young Female Physician. Really, really brilliantly written and very relatable. Cool. I think that's actually been recommended yeah, before. I think so. Highly recommend reading it if you haven't. Which is a sign that definitely need to read it on this current three female podcast. I think on that like realm, is there any like meaningful advice or feedback then that you've gotten throughout your career that you would want to share with young like learners or young attendings? Yeah, I'll give you two. 
One is, which I'm really working on still, uh, but really imperfect action is better than perfect inaction. And I say that as a recovering perfectionist myself, I think this piece of advice will help you in a lot of any kind of project, honestly, whether it's research or otherwise. And then something more related to patients, I was you know, once told that really listen to your patients. It sounds very, you know, corny or obvious, but, you know, really actually sit down and listen to your patients. And I know a lot of times we tend to dismiss symptoms that don't sound like they're a big deal. And it may not be a big deal, but actually making them feel heard and actually following through on what you say you will do for them, I think makes a huge difference. No, I think those are both really good things to keep in mind because especially early in your career, it's really easy to sort of get bogged down by the man, if you will. Yes. And so, you know, just kind of getting in there and doing it. And then I think sometimes when you have so many patients to see, you get anxious and maybe don't spend as much time listening as you should. So those are really good reminders. And that's really great advice. But uh, we're going to change gears entirely, Meredith. Please give us your pick of the week. So I've been going back and forth on um, what it should be. I think I'm going to go with maybe a more traditional pick of the week. You keep doing this to me, girl. No, you know this one. But it's going to be Phil Rosenthal on a block for all of his things so that I can't keep recommending his stuff over and over. But he has his Netflix show, Somebody Feed Phil. And before that one, I'll have what Phil's having, which is also on Netflix. And he just came out with his new podcast called Naked Lunch. And I guess the theme of all of his shows and stuff is just like how the better you travel or try different things and try different like pieces of other people's culture the better you're going to like understand each other and kind of brings about a lot of ideas of like acceptance and stuff but he does it in like a humorous way he's like the creator and a producer for everybody loves raymond is kind of what he's best known for but in his later years he's done all these shows and i just they bring me infinite joy got me through the pandemic continue to get me through my day to day yeah every time you say phil i get confused i mean i'm essentially married to the same one so it's fine <laughs> yeah i get very confused every time i hear you talk about phil because i'm not sure which one you're referring to so my pick of the week is really this playlist i've been working on for the greater part of the last six months so i decided i wanted to create a playlist that's like basically every song i've ever liked ever and i mean right now it's at 28 hours so we'll see where it stops but uh it's pretty random and i'm pretty excited to one day finish it or really i think this is one that just like will be evolving it's called the vault if you will so you know keeping it classy and now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I think given the work that we do, it can sometimes be hard when you're faced by a long list of problems to, to move forward. I think you can look at a very long problem list and become daunted and sort of fixate on the barriers that poses and not start to think about how you can move forward and solve some of those problems. And it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when you're faced with any kind of challenge in life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's generally no better feeling. Sometimes a therapist can be what helps you to become a better problem solver and make it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Um, I've mentioned it before. I think we live in extraordinarily daunting times, and I think we are often just beset by problems, even under the best of circumstances. And therapy can help you start to frame shift and think about how to actually look for solutions. Um, they can help you unload stress. It can help you with the anxiety and depression around that problem solving. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, 
BetterHelp might be an option for you. It is convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Curb today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Curb. You know, there's a fantastic person out there who will improve your business. The trick is just to find them. For a hiring partner that helps you reach new heights, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. One of the things the curbsiders love about Indeed is that it doesn't make our candidates jump through hoops. Indeed's virtual interview tool means there's nothing to download. You just click and talk. With virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. After using Indeed's virtual interviews, most employers said it saved them days of hiring time, according to Indeed data. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes and their database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash internal medicine to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash internal medicine. That is indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Meredith, will you please take us to our first case from yeah. Hashlack? Yeah, so I will preface this episode. We got a lot of cases and a lot of different topics we're going to try to cover. So jumping into our first case, we got Mr. Brown. He's an 80-year-old male with past medical history significant for prostate cancer, hypertension, diabetes. He presents to the emergency room with a three-day history of progressively worsening lower extremity weakness as well as low back pain. His vitals are stable. His exam's notable for four out of five lower extremity weakness bilaterally, but five out of five in his upper extremity strength. His sensations grossly intact. His labs have been unrevealing. MRI of his um, L-spine done in the ER show bony metastatic lesion at L3 with evidence of cord compression between L3 and L4. So I think that often we get these reads from their imaging from the ER and then it's sort of passed off to the hospitalist as to what to do next. Um, And often when I get a cord compression call, Um, after hyperventilating, I'm like, well, who all do I need to really call in this case? So Aditi, kind of what's like our first step of who we should get involved? Great question. And I I will say the first thing, the absolute first thing to do is actually get on your computer and order them steroids. So before you call anybody else, um, you want to order steroids. Um, And there's no magic uh, number in a lot of studies that are, you know, that could support this, um, this number, but that's what is has been traditionally used for several years. Uh, But we basically start with IV steroids, so dexamethasone 10 milligrams right away. And then you can put standing orders to continue that four milligrams every six hours. Um, And the reason is that this is really, really a true oncologic emergency. And you know, someone's um, you you might be saving uh, someone's ability to walk um, and write, and and it's it's you know time is of the essence. So by giving them steroids, you're essentially reducing some of the edema that's um, happening, that's resulting in that cord compression. So it leaves takes the edge off, and as you go to your next step, 
Um, and so the next step, once you've put in those orders and told the nurses that we really need to get, get this in stat, um, is that you essentially end up calling neurosurgery and then follow, followed by radiation oncology both. Um, and the reason is that um, not everyone is going to be a surgical candidate. There's no way um, that you as a hospitalist is expected to know who will go to surgery, who will not, unless there's someone this is, who is clearly you know, not a surgical candidate uh, in terms of their systemic um, you know, how they're doing otherwise, and if they have, you know, major cardiac issues and such. Um, so that's the, that, that, those are the two specialties that you will call pretty much right away after you order steroids. Thank you for giving us permission to not ask permission for steroids. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's right. And when you call those specialists, are there, is there other information they're going to ask you right away that you'd want to make sure you know at that point? Yeah. So, you know, they will want to know, obviously, what type of cancer this patient has. Um, and something that you may, you know, you might have to decipher from oncologist notes, which I know are not easy. Uh, but, you know, at some point might be useful to involve um, the oncology consult team or the patient's outpatient oncologist to figure out where they are in their cancer journey. So very different if this is a young patient with breast cancer who has endless options and has, um, you know, several years life expectancy versus someone who has metastatic lung cancer is now on their third, fourth line of therapy and is really, you know, has only a few months to live. Um, So they would want to know that, um, you know, what is the oncologic status? One of the ways they assess the surgical candidacy of uh, patients is a framework called NOMS. N-O-M-S, which stands for Neurologic, Oncologic, Mechanical, and Systemic Status. So you don't have to remember that, but it's just helpful to know what they're thinking. So they're thinking of what is the neurologic status? Is this a high-grade obstruction or is this a low-grade obstruction where the tumor might be abutting the spinal cord? And you'll see these on radiology reports that it's kind of abutting the cord, but it's not causing complete compression. You still need to act because you don't want to wait for them to the cord to get compressed. Then they'll want to know what kind of... Um, Oncologic. So, what is the type of cancer? Not only you know where they are in their cancer journey, but also is this a cancer that is radiosensitive? Will it respond to radiation? And then they want to know the mechanical um, stability of the spine. If the spine is unstable, they might have to rush the patient into surgery anyway. And then if there's just too many vertebrae that are involved, they may not have, they may not be able to take out that entire part and they still need to have somewhat normal spine above and below. Um, So that's another thing to consider. And then their systemic, um, you know, uh, status, what is their cardiac status? What is their life, you know, survival, um, life expectancy, those kind of things. So they're going to be hinting at all of those things as they make those, you know, as they ask you more questions about the patient. And this is, I guess, just something I've heard talked about because the effect of like a cord compression would be so severe to someone's like quality of life that sometimes the person who for a different type of surgery you may not think of as a surgical candidate, we might be more aggressive because it'll have such a profound impact. Is that kind of like, is that an accurate statement or? I think so. At least for, you know, for all practice, uh, practical purposes, it means you should call neurosurgery regardless. Even if you think like, eh, I don't really think this is a great surgical candidate from, you know, my medicine expertise, I will not 
I don't think this person is going to survive a major surgery. It's still it's good, still good form. No one will ever fault you for asking neurosurgery, and they can very quickly say, "Well, no," and then that's that. And you've still called uh, radiation oncology um, because radiation oncology techniques and radiation techniques have also improved um, a lot over the years. Um, they can quickly do a simulation even on a weekend when simulation is essentially a radiation planning session they can do the simulation and treat the patient in the same day anywhere in in between you know anywhere between one to five fractions meaning how many days they're actually getting radiation and it can provide um, quick symptom control in terms of pain and and actually achieve um, good outcomes for people who are not operable or are not um, surgical candidates okay one of the things I was wondering about with radonc surgery, that sort of stuff, is there sort of a cutoff for radonc? Like how many lesions can they sort of tackle versus not? Because I feel like you mentioned with surgery, like there needs to be like good spine above and below, but does the same sort of thing hold true for radiation? Theoretically, yes, because they have to limit the the dose of radiation that's hitting the spinal cord. Um, but it's very rare to have multiple sites where the cord is being impinged. It's usually one or two or three levels, um, but they are able to do, you know, depending on the technique of radiation, they are able to cover a lot. And the other thing is, even for people who do get surgery, most of them will still end up getting radiation after surgery. So radiation oncology is usually playing a role regardless. It's whether they're going first or after. So I think that's a good segue too. So then now let's say Mr. Brown got surgery and radiation. What do we do with the steroids in the meantime? Does he stay on that for as long as like the specialists say, or is there actually a timeline we should think about? Yeah, I would say um, it's good to ask the specialists and because sometimes that gets, you know, they forget to give you, you know, clear instructions, and it's really not um, something that you should be managing. Um, so it's perfectly fine to ask radiation oncology because um, sometimes we'll continue it for during the time of the radiation and a few days after because there is a lot of inflammation from radiation itself, and you want the steroids on board for some time. Um, and it really depends on the radiation oncologist. There's Again, there's no prospective trial saying how long should you continue this at what dose, um, but, you know, depending on how much inflammation there is, how much radiation the patient is getting and, uh, you know, other factors like if they have terrible diabetes and they're hyperglycemic now because of the steroids, they might want to, um, you know, quickly taper. Um, obviously, remember, this is not a typically not a, a, a issue with tapering. We can uh, taper pretty quickly. It's not like they've been on it for weeks and weeks and weeks that we need to worry about like other things like adrenal insufficiency and such. So once radiation oncology gives us the clear, they should tell us how to taper off the steroids quickly. Okay. And then I think the last question I had on this one is, it seems to me, at least from this conversation so far, that the main players during cord compression are going to be radonc and neurosurgery. Um, Is there any role that like systemic chemotherapy or other therapies from a medical oncologist would come into play during this situation? Usually, I think medical oncologists get uh, end up getting involved anyway because we're internists and we kind of that's what we do, and so we're we're either giving people information on well what is the oncologic status or where do we go next. Um, usually, um, we don't unless this is a 
highly, highly chemosensitive tumor like small cell lung cancer or a lymphoma um, with some kind of soft tissue um, in the back that's causing the com- you know compression, we don't always um, start chemotherapy while we're doing, uh, obviously not during surgery. And um, oftentimes with high-dose radiation that is given, uh, we don't really start systemic therapy during it. But definitely medical oncology should be on board if this is a new patient. Um, but again, um, you know, as hospitalists, um, you just can't possibly keep up with what type of cancer this is and whether we would want to actually do something. Um, I would say more often than not, we're not doing systemic therapy while they're um, in the hospital, but it doesn't hurt to ask. Um, and then one other thing I'll say, which is not completely related, but I always tell people to be aware of the trap of um, the red flags and kata quina syndrome. So I, I see I see a lot of uh, trainees tell me, well, it's not cord compression because they didn't have saddle anesthesia and urinary retention, um, and we didn't get those three, the triad for cauda quina. Um, remember, you're only going to get that if you have tumor at the level of the cauda quina. Um, and most commonly, cord compressions really occur at the level of the thoracic spine, followed by the lumbar spine, then lower down in cervical spines. So... Most likely, the most common symptom is going to be back pain. And depending on where the involvement is, it could be some paresthesias in the arm or a little shooting pain in the leg. And if it's impending cord compression, it could just be some paresthesias because the nerve roots are getting compressed and it's not, not the cord itself. So I, it just, just a caution to everybody that just because you don't have those classic three symptoms doesn't mean that they don't have cord compression. Are there some cancers that are predisposed to cord compression than others? Yes. So most commonly we see it in prostate cancer, any cancer basically that causes bony involvement. So prostate is a big one, lung, um, breast cancer, myeloma, because it can cause those little lesions in the bone and then a soft tissue component can kind of poke into the, um, uh, poke the spinal cord essentially. Um, But yes, those are the most common places where we see cord compression. I would say any patient that has a diagnosis of cancer is coming in with back pain and vague neurologic symptoms, you should really just be ruling it out. Okay. So I think we can just briefly summarize kind of because we got a lot of cases and just to keep everyone straight. So it seems like I would say generally speaking, broad take-home point from cord compression, start steroids before you think twice about anything else. Um, Go ahead and call all of your subspecialists who would include neurosurgery, radiation oncology, and probably medical oncology because, well, I'm not confident without medical oncology on board personally, so I would include them. And then otherwise, it's going to largely be up to that multidisciplinary team to determine whether this patient would be a candidate for whatever intervention um, and whatever is best for him or her. And I think one of the points that this will probably come up several times during this episode, which is we have all these multidisciplinary approaches to pretty much all these emergencies. And our job as a hospitalist really isn't obviously to know the, the nuance of the decisions that are made. But just being aware enough of the process to be able to provide our patients with anticipatory guidance, essentially. So I think that's probably a point we're probably going to make a few times, but I think we should start early. Absolutely. Our sponsor for this episode is HelloFresh. 
Listeners, I'm so excited to have HelloFresh as a sponsor because, as I've said before, I enjoy being in the kitchen, but I don't really have the skills to cook. But HelloFresh makes it easy because they have pre-portioned, farm-fresh ingredients, seasonal recipes. They make cooking easy even for a noob like me, and it's affordable. It can be 25% less expensive than takeout and even cheaper than grocery shopping. So what do you have to lose? And guess what? HelloFresh, it's not just for dinners. HelloFresh Market offers quick breakfast, wholesome snacks, and even desserts. And with HelloFresh, Hello Custom, you can swap proteins or sides or upgrade your choice of protein or even add a protein to a veggie meal. Hey, I love that. And you may have noticed that Green Chef has been a sponsor of ours for a long time, and they still are. But HelloFresh, they own Green Chef, so you can switch between brands and enjoy your curbsiders discount based on what you're looking for. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Curb65 and use code CURB65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Curb65 and use code CURB65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Okay, so we'll move on to our next case. Miss Goff, she's 67. She's got a past medical history of stage four lung adenocarcinoma, COPD, and hypertension, who presents the emergency department with two weeks of worsening left arm swelling and cough. In the past two days, she's noticed that her voice has been getting hoarse and she's mildly short of breath. Her husband says her face has become more red and more round than usual. Initial vitals notable for mild tachycardia and hypertension, but she's otherwise stable. Her physical exam is essentially what her husband has described, and her labs are also pretty normal. So I have not yet seen SVC syndrome in my career, but this really does seem like it. (laughs) So first things first, how do we prove it like imaging wise? Yeah, so the best test, um, as long as um, your patient is not allergic to contrast or anything, uh, would be a CT scan of the neck with IV contrast. That can really show whether there is compression and show you what level the compression is at whether there's an associated thrombus or clot, um, and whether, and you know, the status of the disease, what really is it that is pushing up on that SVC? And if a CT isn't an option? Yeah, and then you can discuss with radiology, and, and these things may not be available everywhere, but you can get an MR uh, venography, um, and then kind of go from there. There's also like... Um, the gold standard, which is um, a CT venogram and um, such, which can be done. But I, I would move, if there's a contrast allergy, I would go to an MR. Okay, so got the imaging. Lo and behold, we confirmed the SVC syndrome. So what's my first step as a internist taking care of this patient in certain terms of medical management? Right. Um, so the first step is just knowing what is, it, do they have a known cancer diagnosis or is this new? So this case, you know, we know that this patient has lung adenocarcinoma or non-small cell lung cancer. Um, but there's uh, there are patients that this is their first presentation uh, for their cancer and we don't know what it is. Um, and we need to know that um, SVC syndrome is certainly an urgency, um, but it's not a true emergency unless there is Uh, a central airway obstruction or altered mental status from cerebral edema or there's laryngeal um, edema or compression of the heart causing arrhythmias and such. So 
obviously it is um, devastating for patients to be, you know, they, their, uh, their face is swollen, their hands are swollen, and it may look scary. Um, but as long as their vitals are okay and they're breathing comfortably, it's not an emergency in the sense if they don't have a histologic diagnosis yet, we do need to establish that first. It's not that we can just throw empiric radiation or empiric um, chemotherapy without knowing what cancer it is because just the treatments are so, so different. Um, so we first need to establish a diagnosis. Um, and in that case, if this is a, a brand new cancer diagnosis, I would definitely involve um, medical oncology. And, and, you know, this is, as is with the previous case, everything is going to be multidisciplinary, which is great because you'll have a team that's thinking about the patient. Um, and then you will figure out uh, what we can biopsy. If this is a lung mass, then you might be uh, calling interventional pulmonary, uh, pulmonary for a bronchoscopy, or you might be calling interventional radiology if there's a more peripheral area that we need to get. So basically, we establish diagnosis first. That way, we can tailor the treatment to the type of cancer um, that is causing the SVC syndrome. Now, if we know what type of cancer it is, it's just like in this case, or if it is an emergency where the patient does have, uh, you know, impending airway obstruction or some kind of hemodynamic instability, you'll stabilize them, whether it, it's in the ICU or you need to intubate, you'll do all of those general uh, things stabilizing the patient. But then you will most likely call interventional radiology or vascular, really, because the first step in that case might be a stent, an endovascular stent that is deployed which has become more and more common over um, radiation therapy. But you will start there. You might end up calling radiation oncology as well because, again, there are certain tumors that are very radiosensitive. Non-small cell lung cancer, um, you know, it's moderately radiation-sensitive. So this patient, if we need a quick, fast response, we might do a stent first. Sometimes we do both. So that's, that's where I will start, that, you know, even though might look scary, don't need to panic. Uh, we do have usually some time to establish a diagnosis or call the relevant consults and then kind of go from there. Well, you told me not to panic. I feel like I'll probably be mentally hyperventilating regardless. <laughs> but uh, kind of like we were talking about the last time, are there any cancers that are predisposed to this more than others? Obviously, chest probably is plays, plays a big role, but are there other ones maybe that we need to keep in mind? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, most commonly lung cancers, but then also lymphomas, particularly non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Um, and then um, things, things think of things that um, happen in the mediastinum. So thymic cancers or germ cell tumors or mesothelioma or sometimes breast cancers that might have bulky um, adenopathy that might cause... Um, SVC obstruction, but more, most commonly, it's usually lung or lymphoma. I had another question from what you had just said, too. So you kind of like differentiated that there's kind of this time frame where it's more of like an oncologic urgent problem versus oncologic emergency. And so in my head, I'm thinking like maybe in that urgent time, that's when they have like early signs and symptoms and make come in for evaluation, is there like a time frame that we would typically expect before that becomes an emergency? For example, like if they only just noticed it? Yeah, not always because it, again, depends on the type of cancer, how fast it is growing. So lung cancer, you know, non-small cell lung cancer, it's not going to be growing that quickly. Small cell lung cancer, lymphomas might be growing much more rapidly. 
Um, so it's a discussion with radiology, you know, getting on the phone with them and seeing, okay, how bad is this? How critical is it? Is it? Is there any impending airway compromise? Um, and they'll usually um, mention that in reports too, like, okay, this is compressing the um, the atrium or um, the trachea is narrow. So those kind of things, um, you know, if it's not mentioned on your report, then clarifying with radiology is always helpful. And then besides stenting and radiation, Another thing might be chemotherapy. If this is uh, something like small cell lung cancer or lymphomas that really melt away with chemo, then that might be something that we start. We may not have to do stenting or radiation. Depending on whether there's a clot there, sometimes there are associated clots. Or um, So if there's a thrombus there, then you might uh, there might be a case to anticoagulate the patient as well. So that might be something um, to do. If there... Um, if they're very sick and there's, um, you know, again, airway compromise, hemodynamic instability, and they have a clot, this might involve the vascular group or IR actually um, doing some kind of a thrombolysis before putting a stent in. So those are things to keep in mind as well. I never thought of sort of two, the double whammy, if you will, of mechanical plus like endovascular, like in the in the vessel. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is probably a good point to summarize for or SVC syndrome, uh, what I'm hearing is you come in, you see it with a patient that has what looks like SVC syndrome. The first thing to do is get a CT, contrasted CT of the neck. Once you do that and confirm that diagnosis, the most important thing is to figure out why, so which cancer is causing it, because pretty much everything falls into place after that. So you can treat the etiology of it as opposed to like just trying to I guess, move it out of the way, if you will. And then in terms of cancers, obviously things that reside in the chest would be common. But then in addition to that, lymphomas are a good thing to keep in mind. Specifically, you said non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Is that correct? Right. Okay. So moving on to, I guess, the next case, we've got Mr. Terrence. He's a 70-year-old man with a history of metastatic adenocarcinoma of the small intestine who presented with worsening abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, Um, which has really gradually worsened over the last couple of days. He's not been able to take any of his home meds or keep any um, oral intake down. On arrival, he's tachycardic, um, hypotensive, but afebrile. His exam's notable for a cachectic appearing male in moderate distress after an episode of emesis. His abdomen is firm, distended, and tender to palpation with high-pitched valve sounds diffusely. Um... He has low potassium. He's a little bit of a creatinine bump. Um, and the ER gets an abdominal x-ray, which shows dilated loops of bowel and air fluid levels consistent with a bowel obstruction. So thinking about him, is there anything else that you'd really want to know on like history, physical labs, or imaging at this point? So let's start with history. Again here, I would want to know what is the cancer status. And I always say what are they on? So what treatment are they on? Um, there's chemotherapy drugs like irinotecan that actually can cause um, a pseudo-obstruction type picture because they can slow down um, gastrointestinal motility a lot. Um, so what are they really taking? Um, and then again, what line of therapy is this? Is this someone who's you know just started treatment and hasn't really had a chance to see what cancer-directed therapy can do? Or this is someone... Um, who's had multiple different therapies and had um, unfortunate progression of disease despite those 
Um, and then when was the last tumor assessment? Um, so when was the last CT scan and um, what did it say? Did the patient have stable disease? Were they progressing? Were they actually responding to the treatment that they were getting? Um, so those kind of things are important to know from a cancer standpoint. And then um, also just um, things that we would ask any patient, regardless of cancer histories, whether they've had a prior abdominal surgeries or radiation. Yeah, I would start there in terms of history. In labs, um, I would add, you know, we usually will also have an albumin because a lot of times we're getting a, a full chemistry. And that just gives us a, a little bit of a, a, a picture into um, what their general nutritional status and overall um, health is. Obviously, you said this patient was cachectic, so that's all obviously pretty telling. Um, and then also getting a lactate in case there is some uh, mesenteric bowel ischemia. Um, so that would be helpful as well. This patient has had an x-ray, which is often the first thing we, we do. Uh, but then when there is really a real suspicion for bowel obstruction, um, I would get a CT scan of the abdomen. And this will not only tell us whether there's an obstruction or not, it can kind of uh, give us a better sense of wh where is the transition point, uh, what is the grade, is this a high-grade obstruction or low-grade obstruction, partial or complete, and uh, whether there's any bowel ischemia that we can see. I think one of the things that's been very telling so far is like actually how much the oncologic like history plays into some of the decision-making, which I think is just like helpful for all of us to think about. This patient has like a known GI cancer. Um, are there other malignancies that we should be thinking about um, that are commonly associated with malignant obstructions? Yeah, so I would say um, besides GI cancer, so colorectal cancers, gastric cancers, the next most common one would probably be ovarian cancers. And really any cancer uh, that has peritoneal involvement, um, that can be breast or lung or melanoma even, um, and that's why, um, you know, it kind of circles back to, again, their oncologic history and status, um, because it's very different to have a metastatic cancer where you have one single met in the bone versus metastatic cancer where you have known peritoneal carcinomatosis and, and things like that. So those are things I would keep in mind. And then I guess one other thing I would say besides cancer, someone can have cancer, but this may not be cancer that's causing the obstruction they actually could have they could have like adhesions from a prior surgery maybe a cancer surgery and then pelvic radiation is another big one so there's no active cancer there but pelvic radiation can cause scarring and fibrosis and can then as a late complication result in obstruction i guess the other thing that i have seen sometimes and i i actually just don't know what to do with this information often is if like there's a million reasons someone might have a little bit of ascites and so one of the questions is is like is that ascites contributing to the obstruction but i often feel like paralyzed because i'm afraid to put a needle into like an area that might have cancer growing is there any like guidance for what to do in that situation yeah um i i think this is not a decision that you should be making by yourself this is really involving um you know your GI surgeons or colorectal surgery and asking them um, because you're, you know, just like any other patient you do, again, even with the previous case, you may think that this may not be a candidate for surgery, but I think just uh, getting their input um, on things like whether they really think ascites could be causing it. But in that case, I wouldn't really, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see the same pattern on a CT scan. Um, and if, 
you know, there is malignant ascites, uh, which is kind of contributing to more of a pseudo obstruction kind of picture, um, then, you know, we would uh, recommend doing a paracentesis and, and you know, um, people get it all the time, the people um, that do have malignant ascites and they may have an, even a peritoneal catheter that is in place. So um, I don't think there's anything, um, there's nothing wrong in doing that, um, but um, it should be driven by a discussion with surgery as well. And talking about pseudo obstruction, another thing to keep in mind is also um, a lot of our patients are on opioids um, and so that's another thing to think about, um, which is a catch-22 situation because they're in a lot of pain and you want to help them and the treatment might actually be more opioids, um, but it's just uh, discerning what's causing uh, the obstruction. It's just helpful to keep that in mind as well. And you mentioned like getting surgery involved, like medical oncology. Is there anyone else to consider um, in these patients? I think palliative care can be really helpful in helping with symptom management, especially if this is, um, especially this patient who looks emaciated, he's clearly not doing well um, overall, big picture. The emaciation didn't happen overnight uh, from the obstruction. So that can be a really helpful uh, resource to both the patient and the medical team to just help with symptom management. And then discussion of obviously helping facilitate goals of care um, discussions. So let's say before you've had a chance like to call everyone or maybe not everyone's seen the patient yet, are there things that as a hospitalist you should be doing right away? Same as like kind of the steroids right away for the cord compression. Um, I think basic management of bowel obstructions. So decompressing uh, with an NG tube to suction, fluids to maintain hydration. Um, you mentioned this patient had a little bit of an AKI and uh, was tachycardic and hypotensive. So fluids, pain control, I would use um, you know, appropriate pain management. I wouldn't hold opioids in this setting because you just you have to get the patient comfortable. And then so that's what I would I would start with. And then as we get more input on whether this patient is going to be a surgical candidate or not, which is, again, dependent on the grade of obstruction and whether they're surgical candidates in terms of life expectancy and what other medical comorbidities they um, have that might preclude them from um, actually getting a surgery. Then there's other measures that can be taken, like somatostatin analogs, like octreotide, that can reduce, it can really help with pain control and also nausea and vomiting that occur by just reducing the gastrointestinal and pancreatic secretions and also just reducing motility and that cramping uh, pain that they might have. We tend to use octreotide, but other options are also some anticholinergics like scopolamine, ryosine. Some people talk about steroids, and there's not great data to support routine use of steroids, but it can be a helpful adjunct to the anti-emetic regimen. And then so that's another component. So getting their nausea under control. You can use low-dose Haldol. You can use metoclopramide or Reglan. And that's really not to be used if there's complete obstruction, only if there's partial obstruction, because it can cause severe cramping. It is an, um, it's going to increase motility, prokinetic agent. Uh, but basically, fluids, decompressing them from above, pain control, nausea control, as you figure out the next step. And since you just said it, so then those are a lot of like symptom control. So what is kind of the next step, big picture for the patient? Yeah. So 
obviously, if they're surgical candidates and there's a transition point and, you know, they go to surgery and then are managed based on whatever surgery they got, this patient looks like is overall not doing well and may not be a candidate for surgery. And I, we don't recommend that for people who have very limited um, lifespans. Sometimes if they're coming in, they, they might get a venting G-tube as another form of decompression. The other thing that comes up very commonly on whether we should be starting them on TPN. And I think, again, this really, really, really depends on where they are in their cancer journey. If this is a mechanical obstruction in someone who has many different lines of therapy that can be used, then in the short term as a bridge, TPN is absolutely fine. But if this is someone who has had several lines of treatment and is not doing well and has only a few months to live, then most of us believe that TPN just prolongs suffering. And there's data to show that there's no improved survival with kind of artificial nutrition at that time. So it's, and, and then that's where palliative care can really help. And the discussions with outpatient oncology can really help the uh, primary oncologist because I think um, it, it, you probably have heard this many times, but uh, for family members, especially, it's just very, very hard to wrap their minds around the concept that their loved one is starving or not able to eat. Yeah, I think that's one of the more difficult conversations. Yeah, no, I think the conversation that frequently is had is, you know, when you start broaching sort of food for comfort as opposed to for nutrition, I think right. that's really just a very, one, it's a conversation that needs to be had. And two, it is definitely hard for families to grasp it, but it is something I think we should definitely talk about. Yeah, and don't hesitate to and have the primary oncologist because involved here because it's it's a lot for them to hear it from you and it's a lot on you. Um to kind of say to them. And so they need to hear it from the oncology team that, listen, we don't think this is going to help you big picture. And then kind of getting, and that's where palliative care can really help facilitate these discussions. One of the things I'm always puzzled by is with the venting peg is I feel like there's like locations that if the, the, the mass happens to be that's like not an option. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I obviously it's going to be under the guidance of a surgeon, but I kind of in my head just like to know coming into it if that's something that's going to come up. I guess if the obstruction is proximal, then I guess a venting G-tube is not helpful. There are sometimes stents that are put in um, as well. And it's it's definitely a, a, a nuanced discussion because there's a whole bunch of complications that can occur with those as well. But if the obstruction is, is distal, there might still be benefit for this the venting, venting G-tube. Okay, so to summarize this case on malignant obstruction, it seems like the most important things that we really have to determine are kind of where the patient is, like you keep saying, during their cancer journey. Is this someone who's going to be able to tolerate maybe more aggressive therapy uh, with surgery and um, other specialists or more going down maybe a palliative route. And some of that can be decided by additional lab work or things like that. Um, but for the most part, it will be kind of based on a lot of information that they've gotten potentially from their outpatient oncologist to drive that. And then otherwise, the management and everything is largely how we would think about an obstruction in any other situation with decompressing and um, treating them conservatively that way until surgery decides um, whether this patient's a surgical candidate or not. 
Right. And then I'll say one thing uh, in addition is that it may not be um, something that we know the day of, you know, it may not be immediate. So a lot of times surgery will say, let's start with conservative measures and see what happens. And then they might do a gastrographin challenge in a day or two and see if they're passing. And sometimes if there's a pa- partial obstruction, people might, you know, that obstruction might get relieved and they might actually, you know, those, um, it may not be that you're in that place of having goals of care discussions or anything because, you know, with conservative management, they did resolve. Um, you know, these things come in, uh, it's not uncommon to then have the same patient get admitted multiple times for the same type of obstruction where we start thinking more of a venting G-tube and such, uh, more to also just provide comfort. Um, and that's that's where some of those uh, more long-term discussions come into picture, unless the patient in front of you is just looking really, really sick and you don't think that they have very much time to live. This might be an ongoing discussion over several weeks or even longer. Great. Okay. So I think we've kind of dealt with some of the more mechanical pathologies for onc emergencies pretty well. So we're going to kind of slowly shift gears now. And one of the things that always seems to come up for onc emergencies is hypercalcemia. But you wonderful, dedicated Curbsiders listeners probably know that there's already a Curbsiders episode on hypercalcemia. And if you're not sure, it's episode 281 from June of 2021. So if you want a full download on hypercalcemia, I would go there. But in the meantime, Aditi, could you maybe give us a couple clinical pearls that are more specific to onc-related hypercalcemia? Absolutely. Um, so I'll start with um, what are the common cancers that actually result in hypercalcemia of malignancy? Um, and the most common ones would be squamous cell cancers of the lung or head and neck, lung just being way more common but it's the squamous cell histology that's notorious for causing um, hypercalcemia. And then we can see it in breast cancer most commonly. Um, surprisingly, not so much with prostate cancer, even though there are uh, there is bony involvement there. Um, both in squamous cell cancers um, and uh, with breast, we can the mechanism can be the PTHR, uh, so PTH-related peptide. Uh, We don't necessarily need to test it. If you have a diagnosis of squamous cell carcinoma of the lung and they have hypercalcemia, um, you don't have to send a complete workup on why this is. Um, And then other things to think about is patients that do have lytic lesions in their bones, like multiple myeloma, um, or patients that have um, lymphoma, where the mechanism is that, I'm sure you talked about this before, but the vitamin D activation within the tumor cells. Um, so I would say, um, big picture again, um, it really, uh, you can do all the uh, kind of temporary measures like fluids and um, bisphosphonates and, or rank ligand inhibitors and such, but really it's going to come down to fixing the underlying problem, which is the cancer. So a lot of times, um, you know, I do get patients where the first thing that I'll notice about their cancer starting to grow or progress again is uh, a spike in their calcium. And, and it's kind of like an oh boy, you know, moment where we're like, okay, so um, clearly there's cancer that's starting to, to grow. And then we do everything um, that we have to do to stabilize the patient and, and get the calcium down. But usually it's temporary unless we can get cancer-directed therapy in them to actually help them feel better. 
Um, and then the only other thing I'm, uh, that you might have discussed before is that I'll say it is, um, you know, if someone has hypercalcemia, you really need to get it down. Um, at that point, we're not worried about dental clearances and such. The risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw is very low, and it's more cumulative risk over years. Um, so I would just keep that in mind because sometimes people get hung up on getting an urgent dental consult um, before treating the calcium. Yeah, that's literally the only thing I remember about zoledronic acid for medical school is osteonecrosis of the jaw. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, I mean, when it happens, it's really devastating and bad. So I, I get I get the worry, but this is a, you know, an urgent situation. Great. Those are some really good pearls. Thanks, Aditi. All right. We've gone through the obstructive processes. We touched briefly on hypercalcemia and strongly encourage you to check out the other hypercalcemia episode. And now we're going to go full-blown heme malignancy. So Meredith, can you take us in? We've got Miss Greenfield. She's a 73-year-old female with past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, and HFPEF. And she just was recently diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. And she presents to her oncology clinic for her first scheduled chemotherapy infusion. And she's complaining of some generalized weakness, fatigue, nausea, some muscle cramps. She reports um, having some increasing symptoms over the last several days, but because she had this appointment already scheduled, she's like, I'll just wait till my appointment. Her vitals are stable, and labs prior to chemo are notable for uh, elevated potassium and phosphorus, a low calcium, and a high uric acid, and her creatinine's up a little bit from her baseline. Um, But the remainder of her labs are pretty much stable from her priors. Her oncologist calls the hospital for direct admission for concern for TLS. So we know right now that we're talking about TLS, but I think kind of the best place to start for TLS, because it at least helps me, is um, just thinking about the pathophysiology of what's going on. So could you walk us through that, Aditi? And I'm commencing chest pain thinking about pathophys. (laughs) <laughs> no, we're going to really, it's, it, this one is simple. So tumor lysis syndrome or TLS, literally the tumor cells are lysing either spontaneously because the turnover is this, um, they're, the tumors, the cells are growing so rapidly, they eventually outrun their blood supply and then they die. So it can happen even without any chemotherapy that's given. It's just happening, happening spontaneously, like a bunch of cells just outgrow their supply. They die, a whole bunch more grow. Um, so just basically any tumor that causes high cell turnover, um, this can happen. Um, and because there's lysis of the cells, whatever's inside comes out. And when it spills in the blood, those are the criteria for tumor lysis syndrome. So some of the ions that um, are inside are intracellular. And now once the cell lysis are cu- come out, potassium, phosphorus, um, uric acid goes up because um, you're you know, you have a combusting cell and your nucleic acids um, are expelled and they get broken down into hypoxanthine and xanthine and then uric acid. Um, and so there, the diagnosis of uh, tumor lysis syndrome is, real, is essentially based on this seminal paper um, uh, that defines the Cairo Bishop criteria for TLS, where um, you need to have any two of these lab abnormalities, which include hyperkalemia, so K K over 6, hyperphosphatemia with a phosphorus over 4.5 milligrams per deciliter, or a uric acid more than 8 milligrams per deciliter, or a calcium that is actually low, 
less than 7 milligrams per deciliter. And the reason the calcium is actually low is because when there's excess phosphorus, it binds to calcium and then precipitates. And so your calcium is driven um, on the lower side. Um, so any two of these criteria within a, within the same 24-hour period, um, either before or after um, chemotherapy or cancer-directed therapy, is diagnostic of lab-defined uh, TLS. And if they have these lab criteria in addition to certain clinical criteria, which includes renal insufficiency, so same, diagno same diagnostic criteria as any acute kidney injury with an increase in 0.3, milligrams per deciliter, um, or they have um, uh, arrhythmias because of their electrolyte abnormalities or tetany um, and other criteria as death, but well, um, and that is uh, called clinical TLS. Um, so that's really the most important things to know about the pathophys here. Great. Great. Okay. So I think then that answered the next question that often comes up is when I have learners, like, you're going off of labs only, essentially, um, typically, you're not really, there's not going to be something that you specifically ask the patient um, outside of maybe, like, palpitations or, like, muscle kind of symptoms or things like that. Exactly. The, all the symptoms are typically related to either their tumor burden um, or the electrolyte abnormality. So, um, obviously, getting an EKG and those kind of things if the potassium is very high. And... I think my only other question with the definition for it is they have to have um, a known cancer. Like if they came in with those lab abnormalities um, but didn't have that known cancer, are you going to go and search for them? Search of a new cancer? I, well, um, most of the times it's usually obvious. If it's a hemalignancy, um, usually you'll be also getting a CBC, so we'll see something there. Or they might have... If it's a lymphoma, they might actually have palpable adenopathy or they might have had imaging that's kind of showing uh, where the, the cancer is coming from. Um, but yeah, people can present with spontaneous TLS, especially people with um, Burkitt lymphoma, which is one of the most notorious for causing TLS. It's just um, very, very rapid doubling time. Um, and the one thing I'll mention here is um, the role of LDH. So as you notice, it's not part of the criteria for defining TLS, uh, but it is a marker of high cell turnover. And when we check TLS labs, it is often included. Um, and with Burkitt, you will see a rapid doubling of LDH. Like you'll see something going from like 5,000 to 10,000 the next day. It's pretty dramatic. Um, but that's kind of uh, where we're where we are um, worried about, um, you know, we usually have other indicators of the tumor. Yeah. So you mentioned Burkitt lymphoma as particularly high turnover cancer and hemalignancies in general. I know this is sort of a heme breakdown, but are there any solid tumors we should be thinking about? You um, mentioned that there might be some, so I was curious if you could maybe tell us a few of those. Yeah. Um, so I would say in addition to Burkitt, the most common hemalignancies first would be um, diffuse large B cell, um, ALL, those are some of the other hemalignancies where you need to be uh, mindful of. Um, sometimes it can happen even in uh, CLL patients with very, very high um, uh, white cell counts, particularly uh, when we're treating with this agent called venetoclax. 
which is usually when that's happening, people are being admitted um, electively to monitor for um, TLS. Um, so it's usually, hopefully not on um, a medical floor, uh, but and or at least hopefully there's a heavy involvement of the oncology team there. Um, for solid tumors, not very common, but some of the more common ones would be uh, with small cell lung cancer. Um, I routinely treat patients that have pretty bulky disease with small cell, and um, you know we treat it um, outpatient majority of the time unless they're very sick and need to be inpatient. Um, so not very common, but can happen with that. There's been reported cases even in colon cancer, um, but just very rare. And you mentioned, you know, maybe these patients don't need to be on the floor, which, you know, I I think we all as hospitalists, our blood pressure, heart rate all kind of go up when we start thinking about tumor lysis patients. But I was wondering if the severity of the TLS plays any role in where they should go and if that's, like, I guess how to characterize the severity. Yeah. So I think the most important uh, thing will be... Um, how how risky is it or what is the risk of their particular cancer and disease burden in causing TLS? So if they have it or whether, you know, they're at high risk for it. So this person with Burkitt, they clearly have TLS, they have AKI. Um, this basically requires frequent monitoring of labs. So they're going to be getting blood work um, every four hours at minimum. So it might depend if that's the only reason for monitoring, so it just depends on the kind of resources you have. So if you can, if they can get blood work uh, quickly every four hours on the floor, um, then it might be someone who can be managed on the floor or step-down unit. Uh, some places that might not be possible and that might require um, ICU for just close monitoring. Um, same thing if they have arrhythmias or if their potassium is really, really high. Um, those kind of things are obviously where they need to be um, on a cardiac monitor, those kind of things. So again, not necessarily particular to TLS, but um, clinically, if you think that there's other reasons for them to have just closer monitoring in an ICU setting or a step-down setting, then that would be appropriate. Cool. So now thinking about, um, assuming we've triaged Miss Greenfield to her right place, and it sounds like from her case, probably okay for the floor. Um, what's kind of that initial management uh, for the hospitalists to be ordering? So fluids, definitely. Um, now this uh, patient you mentioned has uh, some um, has a history of heart failure, so obviously we're cautious about it. But in general, we say this is a real hydration. This is not the baby gentle hydration we give heart failure patients. Like we're really giving pushing the fluids 150 to 200 cc's to 250 cc's an hour. Really monitoring their urine output, emphasizing to nursing staff that this is someone we really need to make sure is we're flushing out their kidneys really well. Um, so fluids, fluids, fluids um, is the first step that you would start. Um, then then we start coming down to, um, obviously, if this is someone uh, that has not gotten treatment yet, obviously oncology is going to be heavily involved in actually starting treatments and such. Um, and then it, we come down to more specific treatments um, to really drive down um like the uric acid level and so on and so forth. Before we get into the specific ones, is there any limitation? Um, so, for example, like if someone has spontaneous tumor lysis syndrome versus, like, does that change whether you can start the chemotherapy or do you have to start treating the TLS first or how do you um, prioritize that? 
I would say uh, with these levels, um, especially the potassium and such, I would say it can happen pretty close together, but I would get them stabilized from a TLS standpoint. And the medications we have are, are now are so good and so effective and, and quick acting that hopefully the treatment is not delayed and we can start pretty quickly. So you can go ahead, I think, and tell us what those medications are instead yeah. of leaving us on the cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, obviously the medicine that we've used for a long, long time um, in driving down uric acid levels is allopurinol. And that is a xanthine oxidase inhibitor. So it's blocking that step where uric acid is being produced. So it's really blocking the production of uric acid. Um, so it's preventing the conversion of xanthine to uric acid. In the process, it does result in accumulation of xanthine, which is also nephrotoxic at high levels. Um, and the second issue is that it takes some time to act. The third issue is it does not do anything for the urate that's already floating around in the blood because it's preventing more uh, being formed, but it's not doing anything with what's uh, already there. Uh, we still need to start that because we do need to drive down the production of uric acid. So we would start allopurinol for everybody. Um, remember, this is a renally dosed medication. So if they do have AKI, you want to make sure that you're dosing this appropriately. Um, and then the second thing that we do is raspiricase, which is a recombinant um, urate oxidase enzyme. So it actually breaks down uric acid into this water-soluble um, compound called allantoin, which obviously you don't need to remember, but just remember it like combusts the uric acids that, that's there. And and it's pretty dramatic. If you've ever given respiricase, you give it one day and then your uric acid goes from like 11 to like undetectable the next day. Um, so it's very quick. Um, and the thing to know about um, raspiricase is um, you technically have to check G6PD levels which I don't know what hospital we can get that stat before. And so it, it doesn't really change your management in the moment. But technically, if someone does have G6PD deficiency, they could have, um, they ca it can precipitate a hemolytic crisis um, in them. It's never, I've never seen it. Um, and it's never come back on time, but we do send it. Um, and usually, for the most part, you don't need to redose the case because it's just very, very effective. Um, so depending on the level of... Um, uric acid, especially if it's um, high, you know, uh, if the uric acid level is pretty high, I would just, I would just do that um, along with your fluids and allopurinol. And real quick, going back to the allopurinol, if you're not concerned about having to renally dose it, do you just do like the 100 milligram dosing or would you go higher um, during the TLS? Usually we use the 300 milligram dose. Okay. Oh, sorry. One more thing. Go for it. We should talk about calcium. Okay, let's talk about should. calcium. Okay. <laughs> calcium in the context of TLS. I will add that uh, when you're monitoring TLS labs, two things I would not overreact to. One is calcium. So if you see a very low calcium, resist the urge to replete it because what that will do is just bind more to phosphorus and precipitate um, as calcium phosphate crystals and damage the kidney. So that, that is one of the reasons why they get um, kidney injury and renal failure. So do not, instead of replacing the calcium, um, put them on FOS binders. So here, if you you know need to talk to pharmacy or um, renal, it's a good idea, but just resist the urge to re replace the calcium immediately unless they are very, very symptomatic from their low calcium levels. 
Um, and then the other thing I will say is LDH, uh, because we do certainly get calls from people saying, um, well, their LDH was 2,500 and now it's 5,000. What do I do? Well, it's kind of expected. We know that will happen. And that does happen even when we have a high-risk patient who's not in TLS, but we're monitoring for TLS because we're starting treatment. As long as they're not meeting other lab criteria for TLS, their electrolytes are okay. And LDH by itself going up is very much, um, um, it's very much expected. It's not dangerous. It's just a marker of now the tumor cells are getting killed. That was helpful. I definitely didn't know like the calcium bit to think about and definitely would be the one who's reacting to that. Yeah, now you're just giving me lots of ammo to educate my learners. I'm very excited about this. Cool. So I think we can go ahead and summarize the case just to keep all of us in line. So it sounds like then, so tumor lysis syndrome, or the tumor cells all break down. We get this influx of uh, potassium, phosphorus, uric acid, and then dropping their calcium. We can use this Cairo Bishop criteria in order to determine if they have the two criteria to meet lab diagnosis of TLS. And it seems like the mainstays for treatment really are going to be fluid, lots and lots of fluids, don't be shy about them, and then the allopurinol and or respiricase um, for your patients. I think the other key point or pearl that you like provided all of us is to not treat their low calcium that we all 100% I think would want to. Anything else? And then start checking those iCals. You know how it goes. <laughs> yes. Well, I think we're ready for our next case. Mr. Chang, he's 62 and has a history of CML, chronic low back pain and hypertension, came to the ER just not feeling great. He's been picking up extra shifts at work and he'd run out of his imantinib for approximately two weeks. It's not the first time this has happened to him either. At his last oncology appointment about a month ago, his white cell count was 12 while he was taking his imantinib. And at this point, he's noting some generalized fatigue, but over the last few days, he's been having some fevers and night sweats. His vitals on arrival to the emergency room are notable for being afebrile and otherwise hemodynamically stable. His exam is largely unrevealing. And in the ER, he has a CBC, which shows a white blood cell count of 160,000, blasts of 21% on the differential. He has mild anemia and thrombocytopenia as well. So... I guess this is hyperleukocytosis, yeah? Yes. Can you define that a little better for all of us? Yeah. So hyperleukocytosis is a white blood cell count of more than 100,000. By itself, shockingly, a high white blood cell count does not necessarily mean badness or doesn't necessarily cause problems. Uh, We have patients with CLL and CML, um, who are sitting with a white count of 200, 300,000, virtually no symptoms. It's really just a lab abnormality for them. Um, most of the time when we do run into trouble um, with hyperleukocytosis is in patients with AML, so acute myeloid leukemia, where it does need urgent management, or sometimes uh, as this unfortunate um, case where they actually have CML, which is now in blast crisis, uh, clearly related to them not taking their highly effective medication. Um, usually CML is seen in chronic phase, so counts that are not this high, blast count that is not this high, so over 20% blast is usually, it, it is what would define as blast crisis. Um, 
our medications, uh, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors or TKIs for CML are excellent uh, when they're taken appropriately. So um, we don't see blast crisis as much as we used to in the past before these TKIs. Um, here, clearly, he stopped taking it, and so now it seems like he does have a blast crisis, um, which is what we worry about. So the definition, I think, honestly, I'm not sure I had ever made that distinction between hyperleukocytosis and badness. Right. So that's helpful to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Other than his labs, is there anything imaging, exam, other labs you might want that would be helpful in this situation? Yeah, and I, I would always say a peripheral smear. Ask a hematologist. That's the first thing we want for everything. Um, but it matters because you're confirming whether they're in myeloid blast crisis versus not, or if this is a new diagnosis um, of leukemia, we want to see what type of blasts these are. Not all blasts are equal. These myeloid blasts that are seen in AML and blast crisis of CML are the sticky ones that cause issues. Um, and you also want to rule out uh, another, which, uh, I would say, oncologic emergency, which is APML or acute promyelocytic leukemia. Um, so you want to really rule that out. So you definitely want a peripheral smear, and your oncologist is um, definitely involved here, especially in someone who does not have a known diagnosis of leukemia. Um, in addition to that, um, I would also get a set of coags because uh, one of the complications that can occur with hyperleukocytosis is DIC. Um, so you would want to know um, what their PT, PTT fibrinogen is as well. Okay. And so let's just kind of jump right into treatment, I guess, after we've sort of established the diagnosis and the situation with a patient who's got 21% blasts. Yeah, so it really depends on uh, what type of leukemia this is. Um, If it's AML, you really need to treat the leukemia. Um, Sometimes um, to just rapidly get their uh, white count down, uh, the oncologist might recommend hydroxyurea as a cytoreductive agent. Um, And that's given, you you know, every institution has, you know, hopefully a separate pathway on how to do this, but it could be as, you know, something like starting hydrea three grams and then dosing it every few hours. Um, And in some cases, it might be appropriate to actually start them on chemotherapy that is uh, going to treat their AML. So we usually call it our induction therapy or seven plus three uh, which is heavy-duty chemotherapy. It's cytarabine and donorubicin. Um, at that point, they are definitely, you know, not being managed uh, by medicine. It's This is what their cancer therapy is. Um, and in this case, uh, where they're just not taking their matinee, we would start them back on their TKI. Um, things, other things to... So this would be how to start. Um, you would uh, here also be uh, concerned about TLS because, again, the, the counts or the disease burden is very, very high. So you, here you might start them again on allopurinol. Um, things to be careful about is there is a theoretical risk of precipitating leukostasis um, if you give them blood transfusions. So... Again, be careful with their anemia. Make sure you run it by the oncologist um, before giving them packed red blood cells. Because the problem with hyperleukocytosis when it is badness is because, like I said, with myeloblasts, which are sticky. So one issue that happens is it's just a viscosity issue. Too many cells, 
clogging up the microvasculature. Um, and the second issue is these sticky myeloblasts actually adhere to the endothelium and then cause a loss of vascular integrity. So there's basically leaky capillaries and they enter um, organs and cause direct injury um, in that way as well. So because of this, once you start getting into the realm of leukostasis, which again, hyperleukocytosis is just a number, very high white count, leukostasis when these sticky myeloblasts start causing organ injury um, and plugging up microvasculature. So if you are really concerned about that, one of the other treatments, and this is controversial, might include leukophoresis, um, where you're physically removing the layer of um, these mononuclear um, cells from the body. Um, I will say this is also very, very um, dependent on institution policy. Uh, most of the time, it's either hematology or your pathology or transfusion medicine department that's arranging this. Um, there um, has There's never been any good large prospective studies looking at it. It's usually been a case series from different institutions. Uh, a big meta-analysis that was done of all these studies actually did not show a survival or mortality benefit of leukophoresis, but if someone is very, very sick, that might be something you're thinking about as well. So while we're on the topic, can you just speak to how common is the leukostasis? Like, how common does that actually happen? I will say not very common, but it is still particularly, you know, when we're looking at AML and when we're looking at blast crisis of CML, which itself is not very common, you can get into trouble with leukostasis which, depending on the organ that's being affected, can present as shortness of breath, or they might be confused or have a headache, or just basically be encephalopathic, or might have changes in their vision. It's like board questions talking about priapism. Technically, I've never seen a case with that, but I don't think we've seen a, we see a lot, but we certainly do get into trouble from time to time. Okay. So it sounds like not super common, but you also wouldn't want to miss it. So to be thinking about it, if you had someone come in with those labs. Absolutely. This could kill a patient. So always very, very concerned when you start hearing some of these symptoms. And it's hard because a pneumonia could present similar way. Yeah, for sure. So can we go back also to what you were saying for the leukophoresis so in that same realm, it sounds like even though there's not necessarily a mortality benefit, are there other treatment options that you would be considering or is that kind of the only option you would have? And so therefore, if someone's sick enough, that's what you go with. Well, besides hydrea or chemotherapy, there's other chemotherapeutic agents uh, that can be used, you know, cyclophosphamide. It's kind of like a just like nuke everything. It basically kills things and can significantly drop. Uh, the white count quickly. There's other newer medications that are coming up, certain monoclonal antibodies that have been used that can actually be helpful. So again, that's very much driven by oncology and whether they think that the treatments that they have, can they lower the counts rapidly enough for the symptomatic patient? But if someone is very, very sick and you know, you don't have time because it, it will take about 48 hours for even hydrea to work and you really need something immediate, then you might not have any other option but to do pheresis, which is not easy because you need a big pheresis catheter 
You need to make sure their coags are okay. And you definitely don't want to do it if someone has APML because that can worsen DIC and just make everything worse. So this is really for non-APL cases with very, very close consideration with your oncologists and transfusion medicine doctors. Yeah, I think that's what I was going to say is like the main takeaway. It seems like that this is pretty nuanced and probably as the hospitalist, you are not the one making most of these decisions. You just need to be aware that the diagnosis is out there and to have it on your radar. Absolutely. You actually can have leukostasis with a count of more than 50,000 in patients with myeloid blasts. Um, So even if their count is over 50,000, not quite above that 100,000 level, and if they're symptomatic, you still should be considering um, leukostasis as a real possibility. And is that for all myeloid lineage, like AML and CML? Yeah, and CML, again, it's not chronic phase, but it's, um, and that's one of the reasons of doing involving hematology, oncology, and and looking at the peripheral smear, because you're ruling out uh, chronic phase uh, CML versus blast crisis, where there's actually these blasts that are circulating more than 20%. Got it, got it. All right. We've put Mr. Chang through the ringer. I think we should sort of summarize this section, this case. First and foremost, hyperleukocytosis Man, it's just a number, you know? And it's important to remember that you would need at least 20% blasts to make this a blast crisis just because someone's white cell count is, you know, 200,000 doesn't necessarily mean they have a crisis uh, that needs immediate attention. And then the other thing to keep in mind when they're coming in is to make sure that you check labs such as coax, to make sure that they're not in some sort of DIC-type picture. And the sort of last piece to keep in mind is if someone starts developing shortness of breath, altered mental status, potentially even priapism, uh, you might start thinking this has progressed into some sort of leukostasis hyperviscosity state. And in that case, you know, we don't have a lot of great treatment options, but obviously, as with all of these cases involving the oncology team, early and often is the best way to go. So you can provide, you know, the right plan of care for the patient. Right. And I'll say that we've seen uh, patients um, who are on a ventilator um, get quickly off within four to six hours with the right um, treatment with cytoreduction, um, even by itself. So these treatments are highly effective and and just kind of recognizing it and involving the specialist uh, is key here. So I think we've covered a lot of ground, and so I think it's a good time for Aditi. Can you give us a few take-home points? Yeah, I'll say, first of all, don't ever be shy to involve your friendly oncologist, uh, no matter how grumpy we sound. Um, This is our job. Um, These are our patients, and we are here to help and facilitate their care in the hospital. Secondly, I'll say, as you see, the common theme has been a multidisciplinary approach, So you might be calling uh, various consults uh, who might be putting their heads together to come up with the best plan for the patient. And then uh, I would say the other common theme has been really finding out what the oncologic status is for the patient. I know it's very hard um, to decipher our notes sometimes and their oncology histories are very long, 
and you have a lot of patients, but even if it's a, a quick understanding from the primary oncologist on where this patient is at, uh, whether they're new to treatment, whether there are several lines into treatment, what their kind of what the patient's understanding is of their cancer, I think are all very good to keep in mind. So this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy! Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And remember, we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our guest, Aditi Singh, to my effervescent co-host, Meredith Elizabeth Trubit, and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Moni Got Money Amin. And I've been Dr. Meredith Elizabeth Trubit. Thank you and good night. <laughs>